The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. I wanted to use something from our study of Mark uh, to jump off from, to help us get a better understanding of how we got the Bible and answer the question, can we really trust the Bible or how can we trust the Bible? Now, we embrace at Sacred City the Lausanne Statement of Faith. That's one of the things, you become a member here, you agree to this Lausanne Statement of Faith, and one of the articles in that Statement of Faith is this, and I think we have a slide for it. Uh, We affirm the divine inspiration, truthfulness, and authority of both Old Testament and New Testament scriptures in their entirety as the only written word of God without error, in all that it affirms, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now, what's that saying? It's saying a lot of things in that statement. What, first off, um, ultimately, there's only, there, there's only really two ways to know God. Let's say this. You can know God in a very general sense um, through creation. God has revealed himself to us in the way he makes things, right? So we can see his might and his power and his majesty by looking at mountains. But you get a very dim view of God, and you're left with... Um, really just your subjective opinion, right? You're left with speculation, right? I think God is like this. I think God is like that. But, every, so every other, this is what we're saying. Every other way to know God is ultimately about speculation. We speculate what he's about. But we believe and Christians believe in revelation, okay? Revelation is God has revealed himself to us through divine inspiration through his word that he's given us in the Bible, okay, that God has revealed. So the only way you can really know what God is like is by looking at the scriptures, right, by going back to the Bible. Now, I'm going to try to prove that a little bit this morning, and we've got some work to do. Now, this is going to be a little bit more like a lecture, okay? I'm sorry, uh, but I'll be back to preaching next week. Uh, But there's a lot of content to cover, and I'm going to follow this up. I'm just going to let you know right away. Um, here are two books. This is called Why Trust, Why Trust the Bible. It's a newer work put out by Nine Marks and Greg Gilbert. It's, a, it's pretty accessible. Anybody can read this. You know, a teenager can read it going into college. It's great for like a general overview of what I'm going to talk about today. And then there's this one that's been around for a while, but it's been newly updated. It's Josh McDowell, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Okay? And this is very... Uh, this, is got, this is really scholarly. It's got a great work. It's put together more. It's like an outline, so you don't sit down and read the whole thing, you know, but you can actually look up what questions you have or if somebody has a question about more of this. So you, I would encourage you, especially if you have teenagers that you're sending off to college, parents, to pick this up and to go through it and to help them prepare before they leave. Or if you're meeting over, you know, with coffee with someone and they have some questions about the, the authority of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture or how can we can really trust it, Those are some great resources to have. Now, I'm going to attempt to do my best in an hour. But in seminary, I've taken three classes over what I'm, three entire classes over what I'm going to try to share this morning, okay? So this is condensed. I'm not going to answer all the questions, but I hope uh, to do it justice, okay? Now, that Lucan statement of faith that we believe the word of God is divinely inspired, okay? Another word, a theological way to describe that is it's also been called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration means that every word found in the Bible is given to us by God, that's the verbal, and that everything in the Bible is authoritative, that's plenary, and that every word is also divinely directed, that's inspired. This means that the recording of the events is under the direction of God and is accurate, okay? So here's the thing. God speaks to a people. Now, the Bible was written over a series of about 1,500 years, okay? So it's, it's been written by over 40 different authors. It's 66 different books, right? There's the makeup, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, there's no other book like this in the world. And Christians believe that God spoke to people, prophets and apostles, and he inspired them to write down their accounts, to write down what he spoke to them in these books that we have here today, all right? And these books are from God for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But here's where where some issues come up. 
verbal plenary inspiration applies to the original manuscripts, also known as autographs, okay? So God speaks to Daniel. Daniel writes out what he said and what God said, and that is called the autograph. That is the original manuscript, okay? The first one, God speaks to Paul. Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians. He sends it out. That's the autograph, the first copy. Now, let me show you where the problem arises. Well, let me just do this. In 1997, when I graduated high school, that was a long time ago, I was given this Bible, okay? And this Bible, I got my youth pastor, he wrote in it here. And this Bible, after not very long, look, it just literally started falling apart, okay? And so a couple years after that, I bought a new Bible. And this Bible, I really loved. And this is actually my second because one of my other Bibles, I was on a camping trip and a guy came to faith and he didn't have a Bible And I said, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. But I did, and I gave him my Bible with all my highlights and all my stuff, and I gave it to him. But this is the next one after that. And again, I've got whole pages that are just folded over, that are tearing tearing out. And this is with a nice leather backing and and, a, a modern binding. So you can imagine what happened to those original autographs. I'm going to tell you, we have none. There are none in existence today. Every single one of the original autographs have been destroyed. Why? Because they were either written on animal skins, which in the time of the Old Testament, things were written on animal skins, or they were written on papyrus. In the New Testament, things are written on papyrus. It comes from the plant, papyrus plant. It's made out of reeds. It's, it's literally, that's where we get the word paper from. So all those original documents, all those original manuscripts have just, think about your grubby little hands, right? And especially in the ancient world, they just, the oils from your fingers, they just literally fall apart. So what do we do with that? Well, obviously, you get the original manuscript, and here's the other thing. Other people want to know about this, right? God didn't write uh, Daniel just for Daniel. God wrote Daniel so people would know him, and so we would know him. And so the first thing you do, or one of the first things you do when you get these autographs, is you make copies. And you make copies, and you copy that down, and you send those copies out so more people can learn about it, and more people can understand, more people can know God and know what he's like. And so we obviously have copies. Now, um, presently, so all of the, presently what we have are copies of the original autographs, the original manuscripts. But, here's the deal. We believe the original manuscripts were inspired by God, were absolutely perfect, were infallible, but that doesn't necessarily mean the copies of those texts are infallible, right? It was the originals that were penned by the prophets and the apostles that were given by God, they were authoritative and they were divinely directed. Now we have copies. So some of our copies are, they're copies of inspired documents and for all intents and purposes, we do believe that the Spirit led, led those copies to be copied and copied and copied, but there can be some mistakes made in the copying procedure. So let me just kind of say, overall, we believe that God spoke to men who then under inspiration of the Holy Spirit recorded those words for us and that those original documents were perfect. They were absolutely truthful and had no errors at all. But here's, again, where our problem lies. One copy of the Bible is not enough. You've got to make hundreds of copies, thousands of copies, send it all around. And so these copyists, these people who would copy it, were called scribes, and they were experts in copying things. They slowly and methodically would copy word for word onto this new piece of animal skin or this new piece of paper. Listen, this is how careful they were. These guys knew how many of each letter was used in the Old Testament? How many of each letter? How many, right? They knew how many letters of each letter were used in the New Testament. They knew the middle letter of the New Testament. What's the middle letter? Anybody know that? <laughs> Liar. What am I, what, what, this, they had checks and really detailed, these, these, these were OCD people, right? These were probably all firstborns. Right? They organized their sock drawer. Okay? These are that type of people. And they, were, they knew how many letters of each. They knew what was the, the middle of the Bible. They had all these checks and balances to help them copy from one manuscript to the next. So, 
Originally, I said the Old Testament was written on these animal skins in about 100 BC. That's when they started using papyrus, okay? And papyrus scrolls, if you've ever seen them, they're scrolled up and it's written vertically like this and they would scroll it out and these scrolls could get as long as 35 feet long, right? So it's a very meticulous process, very slow process, very detailed process. And it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that these people could not make errors or they could not take things out. And, if, and they did make errors. And sometimes when they made errors, those scrolls would be thrown away and they'd be crossed out and redone. But sometimes they would look and go, oh, it took me six months to do this. And it's just going over here. I'll just, it's fine. It's good enough. And sometimes they would literally bring that out and it would have a few misspelling or punctuation errors um, or, you know, or things like that. Nothing major, and, but they would, it, would, it would be distributed like that. So today, when we read the Old Testament, we have a copy of a copy of an original autograph. Now here's where we get some problems. People say, okay, well then how can I be sure, how can we be sure that people have copied those correctly? How can we be sure that this is, ac- this is really what the autograph, really what the authors originally intended it to be writing, right? They couldn't photocopy it, right? Obviously, if God gave us his word today, copy, paste, perfect, right? Can't do that. It's got to be handwritten. Everything's got to be handwritten. How do we know that people didn't just change things to suit their fancy? You know, that whole thing about sexual morality, let's just get that out of there, right? One wife... Right? Right? That being drunk, cross that out. He never said that. Right? How do we know a guy didn't do that? Right? Well, we're going to look at that today. And one thing I want to remind us of a few things here. Jesus himself, so the Old Testament was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And when Jesus referred to the Old Testament, which he did often, Jesus quoted the Old Testament. He quoted the Psalms. He quoted Isaiah. He quoted a lot of texts of the the Old Testament. Jesus himself was working from a copy. Jesus didn't have his own personal, you know, autograph, right? His own personal original manuscript that he worked off of. Jesus himself quoted a copy of a copy of a manuscript, okay? But Jesus still, when he did that, he affirmed it was divinely inspired, He believed that it was accurate. He believed that it was truthful, even though he's quoting from a copy of a copy, right? Jesus trusted the Old Testament, and we should too. Now, here's something that's interesting. Um, In 1947, the oldest manuscript that we had was from 914 AD of the Old Testament, We've got a lot younger ones, or a lot older ones in the New Testament. The Old Testament, the full surviving manuscript of the entirety of the Old Testament, the oldest one we had was 914 AD. And all of these scholars with this literary criticism, this kind of stuff I'm coming up with, and they're saying, well, how can we know it's a copy of a copy of a copy? How can we know it's actually accurate? These things are so, there's so many different errors in it. There's so many different mistakes in it. We can't really know for certain that the Old Testament is true. And then this little boy Outside the village of, uh, I, 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 well, now I forget, I think it's Qumran, village of Qumran in Palestine, he, he was tr- chasing a runaway goat. And he ran by this cave and he threw a rock into this cave, like all little boys do. And he heard, Psh! he heard the sound of pottery breaking. And so, little did he know, this was the greatest scholarly and archaeological find um, that we've really ever had. And this and it happened in 1947, this little boy. And what happens is these scholars get in there and these archaeologists get in there and, and they, they get in there and they start uncovering this and what they find is a completely intact copy. Have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? This is what I'm talking about, the Dead Sea Scrolls. A complete intact copy of um, Isaiah from the Old Testament and it was dated at 100 B.C., 100 BC. Now listen, in one find, we went 1,100 years in history. Okay, the oldest surviving document we had up in this time was 914, and they just found a new document of 100 BC in 1947, dated 100 BC. 1,100 years. Now, here's, this is interesting. In 1,100 years, how much difference was there between Isaiah and Isaiah that we have today, right? Here it was. It had a 95% accuracy. 
word for word, 95%. And listen, 4.5% of those mistakes were the reversing of words. Jesus Christ wasn't in Isaiah, but just think of Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ, flipping those two words. And punctuation errors. And like when they spelled, uh, if they, like if you, spe- if you said R, right? We have, se- we have O-U-R or A-R-E, right? Doesn't change the meaning of, well, you can tell it's wrong, right? You can tell it's wrong. Like when you f- post that to Facebook, and you're like, <gasps> and everybody lets you know, the grammar police show up, <laughs> right? You're like, <clears throat> right? Those type of errors, nothing significant. The only, and then the 0.5 that was not even significant was they added the word light into one sentence. They added the word light. There was one word extra in that copy of light. So literally 99.5% accurate in 1,100 years of history. This revolutionized the way that we study history, our scholarly interpretation of the, of, the, of, the Testament, of the Old Testament, and it gave us a lot of confidence in the accuracy of the Old Testament that we have today, okay? But that's not all. If you go to a more liberal college, a state school, something like that, and you take a religion class, you're going to hear this common thing that the Bible has been copied so many times, it just cannot be trusted. Professors will tell you it has so many mistakes that it's a joke, it's intellectually implausible to even think that it could be divinely inspired. And for some of us, we were raised in Bible-believing conservative homes, and we were raised to believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, it is accurate, and we've even tasted its goodness for ourselves. And so we often just dismiss those accusations, and we just say to sometimes, oh, well, you just have to have faith. So sometimes they give us an intellectual argument, and we dismiss it by saying, well, you just got to have faith. And I'm trying to say, let's engage intellectually with this a little bit, because I think there's, we don't just embrace this because of faith does take faith, but it's also, there's a lot of facts that back us up. Archaeology, there's never once been an archaeological find that's disproved anything in the Bible. Archaeology has only affirmed what's taken place in the Bible. Even when scholars said that city's never been named that, and then they find something 20, 30 years later that, that affirms what the Bible has said. They've, they've, they've had to change many, many times. Well, so today we're going to get into all this where I'm, I'm doing it. Now, faith is required. I'm not going to deny that. That's true. But honestly, we have more than faith to test whether the Bibles we have today are an honest and accurate copy of the original. Now, some of us in college or maybe in high school, we've had to read some really old dudes, dudes like Homer, and that's not Simpson for some of you. Like he wrote the Iliad, and right? So we have to read things like that. Uh, we have to read Caesar. We have to read Plato. We have to read Aristotle. And now when your professor has you read these in college, and you, you can you know, ask anyone around you. They never say, all right, guys, here, we're going to read Homer or we're going to read Plato, but here, these are just a copy of a copy of a copy, so you can't trust anything they say. This is probably not the story of the Iliad. This is probably not what Caesar really said. This is probably not what Plato really said. Your professors never say that, right? They go, here's what Plato wrote. Here's what Homer wrote. Now, they don't apply the same testing to the scriptures as they apply to their own scriptures or their own, you know, Western canon, let's, let's say. Now, how does the Bible, let's ask ourselves this, how does the Bible stand up in terms of these other old, old, old stories, right? These other old documents, ancient documents. Well, I've got a slide for us. Let's, let's pull this up. You can see Homer, uh, he wrote the Iliad in 900 BC, okay? The earliest surviving copy, even a piece of that story, is 400 BC. That's 500 years between when it was originally written and the copy that we have today, okay? Now, how many copies? We have 643 copies of the Iliad. That's a lot of copies, right? So we can affirm that, you know what, the Iliad was written by Homer and it is accurate. Now, you can look at Caesar. This is about 100 to 44 BC. Uh, The earliest copy, 900 AD, right? That's a thousand years, and we only have 10 copies. Plato, Plato was written somewhere between 427 BC and 347 BC. The earliest copy we have, again, is 900 AD. That's a 1,200-year difference between when when it was written and the earliest copy we have, and there's only seven copies, and yet we quote Plato a lot, right? Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC, Earliest copy, 1100 AD, 1400 years between the original and the copy that we have, and we only have 49 
copies. I'm not going to quote those other two because I don't know how to say them. But listen, here's my point. All we have a lot of copies for these, or very few copies, but we trust them. We trust that they're accurate copies, right? Scholars, literary scholars, trust their accuracy. But now look at the New Testament. Look at the New Testament here. 50 to 90 AD, earliest copy of the whole New Testament, 130 AD. That's only 30 years from when it was penned to the earliest copy that we have. And look how, look how many copies we have. 24,000. There's 6,000 actual copies of the New Testament text and 18,000 writer, 18,000 quotations from other writers about what Paul wrote, what Peter wrote, what Jesus did, and they affirm exactly what the New Testament teaches. Now, my point here, well, not even that, just taking these pieces of literature that are accepted within our Western canon. They're taught in high schools, they're taught in colleges and accepted as historically accurate and factual. From these copies and these translations are made that we all read and no one has a question about them. When you, now listen, Homer didn't write in English, right? Then it'd be copied and then translated. But no one, none of your professors say, we really can't trust Homer here. We really can't trust this is what he tried to say because it's been translated into English and it's been copied many times. No one's saying that. The New Testament, we have 24,000 copies. It's not even comparable. The next closest in this illustration is 643. Now, a man named Karsten Peter Thede, he's a secular pepperologist, okay? If you never want to get a date, be a pepperologist. He said that he can date certain fragments of the Gospels back to the 60s, meaning within 30 or 40 years after Jesus was actually walking the earth, while many of the eyewitnesses were still alive. He can date these pieces of papyrus back to them. My point here is to simply reject the New Testament by saying, well, we don't have enough manuscripts, or they're too far removed from the original, or how do we know that's what they originally said, is academically and intellectually irresponsible. We don't apply the same rigor to any other ancient documents. No other. And the New Testament blows it out of the water, and the Old Testament does as well, we saw with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Were we to treat the rest of the canon of Western literature with the same degree of scrutiny as the New Testament, we would literally have no ancient books whatsoever. Again, these books were written on very fragile forms of paper, and yet we've learned from archeologists that original manuscripts that have been preserved for more than 100 years in use. We have some manuscripts that were used for like 70 years and then they just went over them and re-inked them. They were so well preserved, they were re-inked after 70 years. That means the earliest copies that we have, the earliest copies could very well be first generation copies of the original autograph. That's one of the reasons we can trust the Bible that we have is accurate. But some would say, and many do, but there are variations between the copies. This is where some of our problems arise. The truth is that when you're hand copying 24,000 copies, there are few minor spelling and punctuation errors. But with the 24,000 copies, if you have 23,900 that agree and only 100 that don't, you can safely say those 100 are aberrant, those 100 are off, and we'll dismiss those, right? It's easy to do that. Again, the 100 that are wrong, 99.9% of the time, it's punctuation, it's spelling, it's saying Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, right? Now think about that. If you had to write, if you had to hand copy the New Testament, right, how many errors would you make? How many punctuation errors or, you know, skip, maybe skip a line or something like that would you make? We, we would all make many. And additionally, less than 1% of any of the debated material in the New Testament has anything to do with any major doctrine, okay? So the debated material, was this original, was it not? It's not communicating election. It's not communicating the gospel. It's not communicating something true about Jesus that's necessary that we need to know. It's tertiary issues at best, most scholars agree that we're looking at far less than 1% of any potential misspellings or punctuation, and the manuscripts relates in any way to any major doctrinal issues, okay? It's just, it's just a, really not an issue. 
Almost all the errors are just flipping words around. And so, here it is. It's academically reasonable, okay? It's totally intellectually acceptable to believe in the New Testament as we have it, based on historical evidence. God has given us ample number of ancient manuscripts closely written to the date of the original autographer so that we can trust the Bible. But with all of that said, Mark is the one place in our Bibles where that's not really the case, okay? If you look in your Bibles and you've got a good translation like the ESV, and this is another reason we use the ESV. Let's go there right now. Let's go to Mark chapter 16, uh, right before verse nine. And if you have the ESV, you will see, what's it say there right before verse nine? says this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses nine through 20. All right? Some of the earliest manuscripts, now listen, for, for some of us who are conspiracy theorists, and we think like, you know, in, th- in the year 300, the Pope was putting together this, you know, Bible, however he chose, and he wanted to trick people, and you know, we're into Dan Brown novels and things like that. Listen, If that was the case, would anybody ever write that in the Bible? Like in the book? Oh yeah, by the way, the earliest manuscripts don't include this. Like that should just bring questions to our mind right away. What? what? The earliest manuscripts don't include this. Well, why is it here then? Why is this even in our Bibles? Now this is interesting because some people, I I drove by this car the other day and if it's you, so you're in this room, I apologize. But and her, the license plate was KJV only, King James Version only, and there was huge bumper stickers all over the car that said KJV is the only Bible and all this kind of stuff. Now, if you have a King James Version, you don't have that written there. If you have a King James Version Bible, it, it goes from verse eight to verse nine, and it doesn't make sense, and it's very weird. It's retelling something that's already said, and it's clearly not original, but it goes right through like it is original. Why? The King James Bible was written with older, man, or no, no, not older, with newer manuscripts, okay? We didn't know that, th- that we've, we've recently found newer, oh gosh, I'm sorry, I'm getting really confusing. We've recently found older, more ancient manuscripts that are more accurate. And the King James Version was based upon newer. Now that might blow us away because we thought, well, the King James Version, King James was written a long time ago. Yeah, and it was written on inaccurate, off of inaccurate manuscripts. We found newer manu- or older manuscripts that are actually more accurate. <clears throat> Let me tell you right here. The two oldest and most important manuscripts of the Bible, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, they all leave out verses nine through 20 as do several early translations or versions, including the Old Latin, the Synatic Syriac Manuscript, and about 100 Armenian manuscripts, and the two oldest Georgian manuscripts, okay? So here's what, here's what, here's what we're saying. The oldest manuscripts that we have found do not include verses nine through 20. Later manuscripts added it in. Now, this is another reason why the ESV is the best, I think, the best translation available. It's got modern scholars doing current work. Every single year, archaeologists are finding more and more manuscripts, and that means every year our Bibles are getting closer and closer to the original autograph. Okay, and it's usually a one word here and one word there. It's nothing great. Now here, this is what we need to ask ourselves. If the original manuscripts and the oldest that we have don't have verses 9 to 20, why did somebody add it in? Why did someone add it in? Well, there's many different reasons. One, if you're following along in Mark, you know Mark has a very economical style. Mark doesn't, he gives us weird details, but he doesn't go into, you know, he he keeps everything short and simple. His favorite word is immediately. And so he ends ends with a promise of the resurrection. He ends with a notice of the resurrection, but nobody's seen him. He just ends it, stops it. And somebody's reading that go, well, that's a weird place to stop. Nobody's even seen the resurrected Jesus yet. So what did they do? They took the other gospel accounts and they they took details from the other gospel accounts and they added their own little ending. Now listen, the only thing, this is kind of funny. Actually, my whole life, reading this, sections nine to 20, I hoped that it was not true. 
okay? Because this is that, you know, nine through 20, this is actually that scripture where it talks about de- handling snakes, right? Like you can handle snakes and they, and they won't bite you. So the only people that should be really upset about us finding these earlier manuscripts are those Tennessee snake handlers, right? That they're, they're pulling out snakes and they're, they're letting them bite them and stuff. Now, it did happen to Paul once, right? But we shouldn't be <laughs> handling snakes. So this is one of the things that happened. They thought that the shorter ending was too short, so they added this kind of compilation. Now, sometimes, well, why did they think it was too short? Some of them, they thought, maybe thought that this original manuscript, maybe the bottom had been torn off. You know how, like, these pages, the edges of pages get torn up way faster than you know, then the center. So maybe the ends of a document get torn off easy. Maybe they thought the ending had been torn off, so they're gonna supply things from other, other gospels and, and bring up the closing. So what they did was they took the gospel and finished it out. Now, I want you to put, pull up, put, up, put up that next slide, buddy. <clears throat> the graph thing. Yeah, that thing right there. Okay, not the most attractive slide. But this, and, and I'm, where's my line? I know I'm on video right now, and I can't go off screen, so I'm just gonna point to things. The only son of God, you can see that's the original manuscript, okay? Let's just, this is one example of how mistakes can happen. The only son of God, that gets copied twice. The only son of God, the only son of God, then that gets copied five more times. Now this time, one of the copyists forgot the word only. You see that? And it says the son of God, right? And then so from that copy, there's two that have, that have mistakes in them. And in that copy, there's now six down there. And so now we have, you know, a good chunk of them have a mistake in them. They're missing a word. But overall, look how many accurate ones we have, right? And so you can be really, you can see where they went off. Now that's exactly how it happened with this ending. The earliest manuscripts that we have up there, they do not contain verses nine through 20. And then all of a sudden, Later ones, 5th, 6th century, we've got some records. This ending has made its way in there, and it's made copies after copies after copies after copies, okay? But the earliest manuscripts do not have it. So that's why we're not preaching verse by verse through verses 9 through 20. It's been added there. It's been there for, for a long time. I really wish the scholars would have just taken it out, but many of us you know, we, we've, we're used to this. I don't know why. I don't really know why they, they kept it in there. I think, it, I think it, it, it should be removed. But they did make that note that says um, the earliest manuscripts don't have this. And here's another one. Here's another Easter egg for you. If you go back to chapter 14, I think it's chapter 14, or is it chapter 15? Chapter 15. Um, could you tell me what verse 28 says in chapter 15? Very interesting. Now, if you have a King James Version, you could tell me what it means. But if you have an ESV, there is no verse 28. All right? There's another line that was added, like a little piece of commentary that was added by a scholar later on. He just popped that bad boy in there, and the earliest copies don't have it, so the ESV, it's it's an accurate text. It's the most accurate word-for-word translation that we have today. This is why we use it. Now, all right, I'm almost done. I'm going to go through three things really quick. Three, first I've already covered one. Three reasons we can trust the scriptures, okay? One, external evidence. Everything I just said is external evidence. Some of you, you didn't need any of that. You've already trusted the scriptures. You already believe the scriptures. You already know them to be true. But there's a lot of external evidence that confirms that the scriptures are indeed the word of God and they are the accurate representation of the original autographs, okay? There's external evidence. But there's also internal biblical evidence. Listen, Jesus trusted the scriptures. Jesus believed the psalmist spoke by the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus says. And Jesus answering began to say, as he taught in the temple in Mark 12, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put, my, put your enemies beneath your foot, feet. Jesus here says, David was divinely inspired to write the Psalms. Jesus himself, the son of God, is saying the Old Testament was written by God. Again, in, verse, in Luke verse, chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus says, and he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, 
were going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus saw his own life as a fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. So again, Jesus affirms the inspiration of the Old Testament, okay? So we have internal evidence, external evidence. We have Jesus trusted them. We have second, second subpoint of that, other biblical writers trusted them as well. Paul saw, Paul saw his own preaching of the word as God's word. This is what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us, look, the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So Paul knew his preaching. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when people received it, they weren't receiving his words, they were receiving the word of God. Um, we're gonna go fast through some things here. We're gonna go Second Peter 1, and I don't think I gave these to the slides guy because I added them this morning. Second Peter 1, verse 16 through 20. If you've got your Bibles, go there with me. Peter says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. You hear that from Peter? This isn't a myth we got from somebody. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, early, first century, while he's writing, he's saying, my word is the word of God, Paul's word, these scriptures that we received, they're the word of God, this gospel account that we have, it's the word of God, it's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible itself testifies to it. Second Peter, verses three, 15 through 16. And count the patience of our Lord, is that right? As salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to what? The wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. See this? Peter saying that letter from Paul, that's not just a letter from mama. That letter from Paul is scripture. It's the authoritative, infallible, written, verbal, plenary, inspired word of God. We'll go to 2 Timothy now. And this is our scripture that we had read this morning. Verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been what? Acquainted with the sacred writings. From childhood, you've been acquainted with these divinely inspired documents, which are able to do what? Make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the scripture does. It points us to salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God and women of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, okay? So internal evidence, Jesus trusted the Old Testament, Jesus trusted the scriptures, Paul trusted the scriptures, Peter trusted the scriptures. There's internal evidence of themselves that say they knew, it wasn't like they wrote it and somebody later turned it into the word of God. They knew they were inspired by God and they were writing the words of God. And lastly, through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now the Westminster Larger Catechism, question four says this, how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? So how do we know that the Bible is actually the word of God? And here's the answer. The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty. Okay, first, if you read the Bible, and if you've done it like I have now for about 
How old am I? 20 years, okay? I've been reading and studying the Bible for, I cannot believe I just said that, for 20 years. And the more I study and the more I read and the more I come to know, you are made aware of the majesty of the scriptures, how phenomenal, how wise they are, how beautiful they are, how accurate they are. Let's keep moving. And purity, right? There's not one spot. I said, Bible written over 1,400 years, 66 different books, over 40 different authors, and there's not one spot in the Bible that is contradictory. Now, I know people say there are. There's not. If you actually do the work and get down in the text, okay? There's not. By the cons- so it's pure. By the consent of all its parts, right? The whole Bible is telling one story. We talk a lot about that at Sacred City. It's all telling one story. And the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God. The whole purpose of the Bible is to give God glory and every piece of it does that in different ways. Even though there's history in it, there's genealogy in it, there's wisdom sayings in it, there's poetry in it, there's narrative in it, there's first person eyewitness accounts, there's letters. The Bible is one book, but it's 66 different books and it's all types of literature. So when you're reading Revelation, you don't read Revelation the same way you read a letter from Paul, okay? It's totally different genres of books. Let's keep reading which is to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. Now, what's the point? Here's this. Those, there's, though there is historical evidence to support the Bible, okay? The Bible is not in itself a history book. It's not meant to teach us history. It's meant to point us to the way of salvation and to, re- to get us anxiously awaiting the coming of Jesus. And then when Jesus comes, see Jesus as everything, Jesus as the word of God that becomes flesh, okay? So the Bible isn't meant to be a history book. The Bible is a revelation from God to teach us how to know God and how to be with God forever with salvation, okay? Lastly, but the spirit of God is my last point. Testimony of the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very words of God. Now what's that saying? The Westminster Confession is all the historical reliability, all the unity, all the purity, all the beauty, how it's all telling one story. Those are all great and you can study that you can say, this is, I could say this is probably historically accurate, and this is a good book. I could say that. There's, there's many people that have been convinced. Uh, well, there's one, a modern, a modern um, <clears throat> she was a professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian in a les- lesbian relationship. She was writing the um, equality, I can't remember, the uh, sexual harassment and sexual, g- the gender uh, textbook in, for their campus. And she said, these Christians are coming against me. I need to find a way to, uh, I need to understand their arguments and I want to disprove them. So she started reading the Bible and she was a literary scholar, okay? And she was converted to Jesus Christ as, as a Christian through reading of the Bible by seeing the purity of it, the continuity of it, that how all these different authors and all these different genres, they're all saying one thing. Mankind are sinners. Jesus Christ was the son of God and he came and lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death so you could be made right with God. It was all telling one story. She was blown away by that and converted. And now she's the wife of a pastor and she's got several adopted kids of her own and it's a great story. Um, Rosaria Butterfield is her name. She's got several books out that she can read. But what the Westminster Confession is saying, all those things are great and they might convince some people, but the only thing that will ultimately convince you that the word of God is actually the word of God is by reading it, by studying it, and the Holy Spirit applying it to your heart where all of a sudden one day you're reading it and something jumps off the page at you and you know it's the word of God. You know it in your belly that it's the word of God. Now, John Calvin comments on this like this. The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself and his word, the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded because until he illumines their minds, they ever waver among many doubts. And then, 
modern theologian, J.I. Packer, commenting on that, says, Calvin affirms scripture to be self-authenticating through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. What is this inner witness? Not a special quality of experience, nor a new private revelation, nor an existential decision, but a work of enlightenment whereby through the medium of verbal testimony, the blind eyes of the spirit are opened and divine realities come to be recognized and embraced for what they are. This recognition, Calvin says, is as immediate, unanalyzable as the perceiving of a color or a taste by a physical sense. An event about which no more can be said than that when appropriate stimuli were present, it happened. And when it happened, we knew it happened. Or in the words of Jesus, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now here's the thing. You can walk through the woods all you want and you can stare at the beauty of creation and you can look up at the sky and you can gaze at the stars and you can think about the creator all you want and that tells you a little bit about him, but you cannot know for certain by looking at creation. You can only know for certain by going to the word of God, studying it there, having it confirmed and applied to your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is how, one of the ways we grow into the likeness of Jesus, right? And so, honestly, I'm gonna ask you this morning, are you doing that? Like, There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of scholars all over the world, archaeologists, they're historians, they're doing all the work necessary to find these ancient manuscripts to confirm for us, to get us better and more accurate translations of the Bible. I mean, you can go and you can get this gorgeous ESV right here. This is a goatskin ESV. I love it. It's my favorite. But you can get a woman's Bible. You can get a men's Bible. You can get a an athlete Bible, a warrior Bible. You can get a teen's Bible. You can, there's so many thousands of translations and thousands of Bibles that are out there that so many people are doing all this work, but are you actually reading it? So much work has gone on to this. God spoke, God revealed himself to us. Are you going to his word to do it? Now listen, until I was 17 years old, I didn't read the Bible. God converted me when I, was set, when I was 17 years old and then I got this voracious appetite for the word of God and I started in Genesis and I made it to a couple chapters into Leviticus, right? And then I gave up and then I went to my youth pastor and he said, hey, start in the gospel of John. And I started in John, I started reading and I, I could understand that, right? Old Testament, some of it's really hard to understand. New Testament, woo, started eating it up. What's Jesus like? What did he do? What did he say, right? Started studying it, getting into the, the, the letters of Paul, letters of Paul started whooping me, right? Good stuff. If you've never read the Bible, go to the Gospel of John. Start in the Gospel of John. Pick up the New Testament. So Old Testament, first half of the book, basically. New Testament starts with Matthew. You can read it, read it on through. You should be carving out some time daily, whether it's a few verses whether it's more of a devotional, it's got a chunk of scripture and then something like that. So you're thinking about the word of God, you're meditating on the word, you're putting yourself in the position so the Holy Spirit can speak to you through God's word. Don't expect God to give you a dream at night. People come to me all the time, Justin, I'm really wanting to know if this person that I'm with, if I should marry them. And I'm waiting for God to tell me. I said, okay, are they a Christian? No, okay, well he says, no, it's not the person. Why? Because in the Bible it says that we're not to be unequally yoked. We're unbelievers with believers are not supposed to get married, all right? That's what the Bible says. Now that happens, and sometimes it goes really bad, and sometimes God converts people. But listen, you don't have to have a word from God in a dream when he's written it in the Bible, right? That's, he's given it to us. Now it's our fault if we don't study it, right? So I pray that this Uh, lecture, I guess, this morning has given you some confidence, maybe more confidence in trusting the reliability of the Bibles that we possess in our hand. And when somebody says, oh, it's a copy of a copy of a copy, you know, hopefully you can either point them to this podcast or you can say, actually, no, you know what? It's not. And you can debate with them a little bit in a kind way uh, to help them trust the authority of the word of God. Now, here's the other thing. There's sometimes, I quote this a lot, but Aldous Huxley, famous he was kind of grew up in a church home, but then he became an atheist in college. 
he didn't pull any punches and he just straight out said, listen, the reason I became an atheist is because in college, I wanted to sleep with whoever I wanted. And because I wanted to sleep with whoever I wanted, I wanted to disprove the Bible. And so I looked up, I tried to disprove the Bible and I've got enough doubts that I can disprove the Bible so I can live however I want. See what that's saying? Romans 1 tells us that all of us are sinners and we, down in our core, we suppress the truth. We don't want it to be true because if, if it's true, it makes demands upon our life, right? And so there's some of us who just, we can have all the evidence in the world, but we don't want to believe because we want to sleep with whoever we want or we want to do whatever we want with our money or we want to live however we want to live our life, right? So I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would change your heart and that you'd hear the gospel. And so as I close right now, which I am doing, uh, I want to remind you that all of us in this room are sinners, myself included. And the one core message of the Bible is that every human being has fallen from God, has turned their back on God, has walked away from God in a myriad of different ways, and yet Jesus Christ, God's son, left heaven and came to this earth to live the life all of us fail to live. Perfect life. He never you know, blew his temper. He he, he never stole. He never lied. He never sinned at all. And yet Jesus Christ was treated like a wicked criminal and crucified in our place to take our place. He took our sin so we could have his righteousness. And so now, as he was resurrected and he ascended to the right hand of God, he stands in the presence of God right now. If we put our faith, if we believe in him, if we believe in his testimony, we believe in this word, we believe in who he was, that he came to earth to show us what God is like and to live this perfect life and die the death for us, that we can live again and we can have our sins forgiven, we can be adopted into the family of God and we can make certain that we'll make heaven our home and then the new heavens and the new earth our home for eternity. And so if you've never believed that, I'd invite you to believe that. Trust Jesus. I did it when I was 17 and it's been... Uh, it's been a, an amazing ride. And there's many people here. If you guys notice, we started this church with a few, couple, couple dozen people. Uh, we're about four years into it now. And just over four years, four, it was four years in January. And last Sunday, you know, we had three, over 350 people uh, in this room. It was unbelievable. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I can't believe what God's doing, how missional communities are, are out there, disciples are being made, are, the impact that we're making in the city. God is at work here, and this is a special move of God, and we don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to take that lightly, and we want to invite you uh, into that uh, and join us. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And for the, the Lord's Supper is only, let me just say this, baptism is the sacrament of entering into the family of God. It symbolizes you entering into this church, okay? Entering into the family of God, that you're now one of us. That's why we make commitments back and forth. And listen, the Lord's Supper is the renewal of that covenant. Every Sunday we come together and we eat together and we say, these are my people and this is my God. Every Sunday we do this, right? And so at Sacred City, we only invite those who have been baptized to partake in the Lord's Supper. Baptized as a baby is fine. Baptized as an adult, that's fine. But not, not, not dedicated. Baptized only to the supper right now. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the miracle that you performed in just giving us the word and then preserving the word for us and, um, and how so many, probably millions of people have done so much work preserving and keeping and copying to get us the word of God that we have today. I thank you for that. I thank you for your providence in that work. And I thank you for the one story that the Bible tells of Jesus dying for our sins so that we could be made sons and daughters of God and have life and happiness forever. As we come to the table this morning, that's what we celebrate. That's what we remember. The body of Jesus that was broken and, and it's represented here in the bread and the blood of Jesus that was shed that's represented here in the blood. And we don't want to take this and eat this in an unworthy manner. We want to do this according to your word in the way that you prescribed. And so we turn from our sins, we repent, we confess our need for you, and we trust in the righteousness of Jesus and we eat the meal together this morning. We do this in remembrance of you, Father. I thank you for your work. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. In Christ's powerful name, I pray. Amen.